You're listening to Ember Weekend, your working recap of all things Ember. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson, and we're here to keep you in the Ember Run Loop. We're broadcasting from HashRecord HQ, and uh, we're here with Stanley Stewart. How you doing, Stanley? Hey, I'm great. How are you? I am doing great this fine Saturday uh, afternoon. It's very sunny, and we have a, uh, a, a fair out in the distance, so I'm actually kind of... Well, I was just a moment ago staring at a Ferris wheel, which is kind of cool on the right. beach. So, and it's super pumped because it's also the Global Ember Meetup. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, unfortunately, we're missing the the latter portion of that. But, um, uh, you know, you, you didn't have to say anything. Like nobody would know. Well, yeah, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I can still edit this later, so it's no big deal. So, uh, Stanley, <laughs> um, uh, thanks for coming out uh, and and spending some time with us. I really appreciate it. Um, I've been following you on Twitter for a long time, and you're super involved in the Ember community. And first off, I'd like to thank you for all the stuff you've done. Uh, your work on Ember Data and in Ember itself has been really helpful for um, for me personally and for my company and clients. Uh, so thank you. And uh, yeah, I'm like I said, I'm really excited about this. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, I'm Stanley Stewart. I live in Austin, Texas, and I work at a company called The Front Side where uh, software consulting shop. We do Ember and some Rails and some other stuff. Uh, I'm also a member of the Ember Data core team. Yeah, so that's basically what I'm doing right now. Cool, cool. Yeah, uh, you are the second frontsider to be on Ember Weekend. Um, Robert DeLuca um, joined us, I want to say, early on. Maybe, I don't know, like episode It's like the third 14? episode or something. Yeah, early. Really? Early. So, yeah, um, frontside's pretty awesome. I... Uh, I think I I have been listening to the Frontside podcast as well. Um, you are featured on that quite often, is that right? Uh, I am there occasionally on the Frontside podcast. I'm on our latest episode with Trek, which will be out sometime next week. I'm not sure when this recording comes out, but by the time this comes out, ours will be out with Trek, and we kind of talked about component design and reuse in the large versus reuse in the small and that kind of stuff. So kind of like taking his talk from Ember Camp two or three years ago and see how that applies today in Ember. Awesome. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i always really jealous of all of the uh, of all of the guests you guys have on the Frontside Podcast. It's kind of cool. Very, very cool, actually. Um, so uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you got started in Ember and maybe some of your Ember experience? Oh, wow. This is embarrassing. So how I got started in Ember was... So I had just gotten my first job working at the same company with Ryan Florence, and we were using Backbone at the time and just like a ton of jQuery spaghetti. We had a very huge Rails app that was very complicated, and uh, the JavaScript itself was complicated. We had kind of our own required JS setup. So the setup itself was sort of necessary to keep everything in check because there was no asset pipeline. It was a Rails 2.3 app. And so I was not like, I first got started with JavaScript and jQuery, but very quickly I found it was super easy for me to make messes for myself. And so Backbone was kind of like the next logical step forward and really helped me level up. And it was working well for us. We had kind of shipped some apps in it and like we started sprinkling parts of Backbone into our page and... Ryan had started looking at Ember, and so he's like, you should check it out. So I kind of like looked at the docs, and the reason this is embarrassing is because I was kind of a jerk to Tom about it. I'm like, what is the deal with this? Don't you like pre-compile templates or whatever? Why is this this? <laughs> and this was back in the day when like everything was a demo on JSBin, and 
you like would put script tags with handlebars in them and so it was like ah this this is not the way i would want to write an ember app and tom was like this is only for demo purposes here's how you like integrate this with your pipeline and whatever and and ryan was like hey you should like maybe chill out and uh <laughs> give ember a chance so what really sold me was ryan one helping me to kind of understand ember and then ryan built sort of like the shell version of our current app uh using only our api um and he did it in i think a weekend um he had some just very rudimentary css and some basic data displaying there but i was kind of really sold on like once the app was loaded it was like it felt like a great experience because you didn't have that white sort of like loading screen in between and then ryan was kind of showing me like okay here's views here's routes here's like you organize this stuff i was kind of sold immediately because it was it really took away all of the sort of like wiring we were doing by hand and backbone we sort of like and this is very common for a lot of backbone users as we had our own sort of like component type framework where you would opt into a component by like specifying some data attribute on your HTML. And we were not super happy like maintaining that. And Ember, it kind of made writing stuff in JavaScript more fun again because it was like, hey, I'll just write this and you have outlet and you have a router. And it was a great way to get our applications going. And so because it was early days, often things just wouldn't work in Ember. And so I was really sold on the idea of Ember. So that's kind of how I got involved was fixing various things that didn't work in our apps. Oh, very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I think that's a, uh, it seems like a kind of a common story with the backbone transition. Um, I'm currently working on a backbone project, which is quite old. And uh, and you end up in inventing a lot of like, conventions ad hoc it feels it doesn't feel very good i could totally understand why you know working with that for a good a good long period of time you would want to go over to somebody who or some some framework that has a has a more clear idea of what it wants to be and how it wants to do it so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time um so yeah that's pretty cool also uh ryan ryan florence um i've used him a number of his old JS bins for like drag and drop and stuff. So I'm assuming uh -huh. there's, there's, I don't know if, uh, if you've uh, seen Robert Jackson's big giant compilation of gists, it's like forever ago or JS bins rather. Um, but I there's a, seen this. there's a whole section. I, I'll, I'll send you a link. There's a whole section of like, of like, do this, do this, do this. And then like a few of them are just Ryan Florence. And, uh, yep. I don't know. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of my time was spent fiddling with that sort of thing. Yeah, I would say I definitely like I I learned so much from working with Ryan and especially his style of component design where we we can we keep coming back to because it's similar to Trek's talk, but being able to have these really small pieces and realizing that front end developers and designers mostly just want to write HTML and JavaScript, so embracing that was awesome. But we realized. I would not say we use these words, but watching a Sandy Metz talk from RailsConf, uh, she said that uh, duplication is often better than picking the wrong abstraction. And I think for our backbone framework, we were we kept inventing the wrong abstractions because we were rewriting them constantly and it was really hard to train people to use them. So we kind of wanted to avoid that with our Ember stuff. And how we did that was we had a bunch of little components 
and Ember makes it easy to wire together components because you just like write some HTML and then you have your handlebars helpers that wires it all together for you. And it makes it really easy to compose those really small pieces versus having like one big configuration object like with like a jQuery date picker or something like that. Right. So what kind of uh, what kind of work is the front side doing now? That's a good question. I could start out by saying we're definitely in the business of helping businesses get started with Ember, training them with Ember. We can we can do prototypes. We can like help your team get started with Ember and take it all the way through testing into production. Um, I would say with most of our clients, though, once we have that set up, we start to take on the role of more of a trusted advisor uh, when it comes to both your code base in the large and organizational stuff. So uh, we've helped a few clients, like one, get on like automated tests, CI, Ember's like Ember best practices and stuff, but then also helping teams coordinate and uh, providing guidance, especially when it comes to front end stuff. We've helped them do style guides and stuff like that as well. So uh, which one, what of those do you prefer? Like, do you, do you like uh, working, training people or, or do you like kind of the, uh, like getting down into the, the code and actually, um, you know, writing Ember? Um, I like a mix of both. I find that I'm pretty unhappy when I'm doing one or the other, but when I'm doing both and going between them and having variety, that makes me pretty happy. So at the, at the front side, when you, when you have to uh, dive into first setting up uh, testing for a client that maybe doesn't do that or maybe does it in a limited uh a limited quantity or whatever how do you go about approaching the testing wrapper do you do like large-scale integration style tests or do you actually go down kind of nitty-gritty in in unit test or uh, is there some other strategy that you tend to use to kind of get people up on the on the right foot so i'd say the first thing we do a lot of our clients are either starting a new ember app or if they have an ember app it's not tested or has a very few amount of tests so the first thing we want to do is make sure that the value uh, the development team we're working with becomes more visible immediately. So the first thing we do is actually get the app deployable. So that means when somebody pushes to master on GitHub, like somebody accepts a pull request and says, this code looks good, a service like Jenkins or Travis is going to build that code and push it up somewhere. This kind of helps. We kind of have a staging environment for this. So even if that's different than their production environment, it's still at least pretty similar. And that way, the team and the stakeholders can both just visit this URL and see like, oh, there's new stuff happening in the code. I can go around and play around with it. So once that's set up, uh, we have the build start doing tests. And that can take a number of different steps because we've had clients who use Ember CLI. And with that, we typically get them set up on Mirage nowadays. We used to have like kind of a pretender and custom fixture step that Mirage has just like completely eliminated and is super awesome and great. Otherwise, if we can't move them to Ember CLI immediately, we'll typically use something like Karma or Testum and uh, usually Karma, but just having like some Ember integration level style tests. Uh, we usually start with integration style tests because I think no matter what your backend is, uh, you're probably familiar with Selenium style tests, whether that's Capybara or Selenium itself. And especially since with Ember, it's very user centric. So they're going to visit this web page, which is like, like somebody gives them a link. So from that perspective of the story, they're visiting the page, 
They're going to click around on some stuff, fill it in. We're going to expect this stuff to be displayed on the page. And then we go, then we help them kind of stub that data out so they don't need to have like a backend server running for their tests. So we teach them how to use Mirage and uh, stuff like that. And then once that's in place, the development teams can start running with it and we show them sort of the open style, open source style workflow where you open a pull request and your CI server will run your tests and people can do a code review and say like, either this looks good or, hey, we can make some improvements here. And then when that's ready to go, it gets merged and onto staging so people can, like maybe there's some stuff that, you know, they want to have like a, an automated QA or not automated, but a manual QA engineer look at before going to production. And then we can definitely help people also get CI set up straight to production, but sometimes that's, you know, more complicated. Not everybody is using a Heroku or even S3 to store files or stuff. So we kind of bring them onto our setup and then figure out what, how to get to their setup for real production later. But we want to show them like, Hey, you may have had like this bad experience with testing an Ember or just like Jenkins or Travis or whatever in the past, we want to show you how easy it is to do that. And your boss is going to love it because they're going to be able to see everything you're doing really quickly. And you're going to like, not that we want to take away all the talking, but we want you when somebody asks like, Hey, how's that feature going? You can say, well, we've got part of it implemented. Here it is. You can play around with it and get that feedback cycle going really early. Yeah. yeah very cool. So are you using uh, Ember CLI Deploy at all with this kind of approach? Uh, I've started using it in my side projects, and some of our clients are wanting to move toward it. So we're exploring it um, just because it's sort of early days for Ember CLI Deploy, but it's rapidly stabilizing. Now we're starting to explore uh, both with our own side projects and our front side projects, uh, moving them on to client stuff. And so far, I've been really impressed with it. Today seems to be like the the day of fast boot with the, what just happened with the global meetup. That was a, a great talk by by Tom Dale, uh, and you had recently put some things up on I think Twitter, uh, talking about getting a fast boot application up and running. Uh, you want to talk about that? Yeah. So uh, I'm I have a side project that is a rewrite of the API doc site on Ember. So one feature we get on the website issue tracker. Uh, for quite a while, since 1.0 really, is uh, being able to see the API docs for older versions of Ember. So while we could do it with our current system, everything is very tied to the current, like, in order to deploy the API docs, you have to, like, check something into Git, and then that remains an artifact forever. So we couldn't really do it the same way we could with guides, or maybe we could. So I kind of had a couple goals with this. One was uh, I wanted people who wanted to contribute to it not have to use a Ruby build stack. I'm really comfortable with Ruby and I love Middleman and I think it's a great project. But now that we have Fastboot to do kind of these SEO type things for us, uh, it would be cool if like Ember's docs and other things were sort of these uh, things that were using Ember and were like good examples of Ember apps. So people are like, what does an Ember app look like? Well, the documentation you're looking at is an Ember app. Open the Ember inspector and you can kind of play around with it. And the second one was more of a personal one, which is uh, I wanted to learn PouchDB. So PouchDB is a JavaScript database that runs in both Node and the browser, but it's mainly for the browser. 
and it syncs with CouchDB and Cloudant. And so the kind of the cool thing here is the syncing and then also the uh, the offline stuff. So been paying uh, close attention to service workers, which allow you to kind of, they're a low level interface for caching stuff. And service worker like lets you have finer grain control over the cache. So the previous like implementation of this was the app cache manifest and it had just had super bad defaults. You couldn't really control anything uh, and you could get into a state where if you deployed a really bad app cache, your users could never recover from it unless they cleared out their browser data, which like seems really bad. Mm -hmm. uh, so service worker is kind of like the next iteration, which is like, here are some hooks. You can kind of do whatever you want. And I like that approach because it's not like, I don't think browser vendors are going to come up with uh, like a better app cache manifest because everybody has just different needs. And so it's hard to like please everybody. So giving people like this low level control over the browser networking, like it seems like a crazy idea, but <laughs> it seems crazy. But it, if we really want to push forward what the web is capable of, I think it's probably pretty important because like, especially with single page applications, like some things I kind of want to be able to work on offline. So one example that is kind of frustrating is like Google Docs. If you are like going through a tunnel or something on a train and you lose connectivity, it's like you uh, you are offline and it's great to know that you're offline, but it like prevents you from editing the document you're working on at all, which is kind of bad because like I should be able to type in my document and do that kind of stuff. So uh, I wanted something for the API docs that was an example of here's what an offline application looks like with Ember. So we're kind of starting to explore that now. What you were saying about, you know, the guides of Ember should should be in Ember. Uh, that's kind of the same approach we took for the Ember Weekend website. Like uh, when we first started this, we were, you know, looking at, you know, hosted solutions. And uh, and we were like, well, if we're writing, you know, we're writing these blog posts, we're doing a podcast about Ember, we should be able to write a decent, you know, website. And, uh, and, I, and I think it helps. Like we're able to use it as an example of, you know, uh, like whenever we mention code or whenever we want to try something new, we can point to, you know, to the website and it's nice that the guides can now do the same thing. Yeah. I definitely like that philosophy. Like Ember is not a great blog framework or, or I mean, you could use it to build one, but you probably wouldn't want to for like your company, something mm -hmm. like ghost or WordPress really has like all the SEO stuff, all the theming, all the support, all, you know, like it has an editor that, you could pass off to somebody who doesn't want to, you know, edit Ember code to change stuff. Um, but as like a learning opportunity, it's uh, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically with Fastboot, um, that has been a thing that uh, we've we've mentioned a few times uh, is like uh, SEO things like uh, open graph uh, meta tags and um, and like Twitter and Facebook uh, meta tags. They just don't show up per page because you can't really update until after the Ember app is hydrated. Um, so it's one of the, that's one of the things that I'm super excited about Fastboot and why I was excited to see uh, your Ember API doc um, thing running in Fastboot is just the fact that it kind of means like long-term, maybe we'll be able to start uh, using Ember in places that are not really very smart to use it right now. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. Yeah. When, when I think of like an odd use case, and this is not, I don't want to talk crap or talk down at this particular company because they're really helped pushing this forward. They kind of saw the long-term vision and are buying in. Uh, when I first saw Bustle, 
the website, I was like, huh, that's weird. Like, they're totally a content site. This should be, you know, server rendered and whatever. But using the website did feel pretty good because like once it did load, everything loading in between pages was really fast. So they're one of the people, and I think Tom just got them. They now do fast boot for the Googlebot. So they're trying that out. And once that's sort of like verified at their kind of scale, they can turn it on for everybody, especially once Fastboot can do rehydration. So you, it won't have to like re-render the HTML once JavaScript takes over. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And that's that's going to be coming up kind of with Glimmer too, right? So that's, I don't know the timeline on that, but I feel like that's the rehydration step is still predicated on some work there, right? Yeah. So I, I feel like Glimmer 2 is kind of thrown, a, thrown around a lot. And a lot of people are like, what is Glimmer 2? Understandably, like I think I was until about a month ago, like I learned Glimmer 2 was a thing. So Glimmer 2 really briefly is a rewrite of HTML bars, just sort of to one, uh, changes the approach. So like when you, the current approach is, is like it takes your handlebars template and uh, it turns it into like a function that calls stuff on a DOM object. And so this approach really works. And if you've like looked at the compiled code for HTML bars, you're like, uh, this looks weird and whatever. Like you'll, you'll notice like a lot of repeated stuff as well. So what Glimmer 2 allows us to do is it really turns the template and it really turns the runtime into more of like sort of sort of like a VM. So what something would compile to in Glimmer 2 is a data structure that's similar to an array of like, it's going to read stuff and it's like, you have an element, it's a div, it has these attributes, it has this body, which is another element and so on. So hopefully that one reduces kind of the size and payload of the compiled templates. And two, because of this sort of refactoring it allows basically Ember to have that like finer control over its own quote unquote virtual DOM implementation. So it can, in theory, like keep track of what's been rendered. And then like if you're on a new page, it can kind of like recreate that structure as it, as it's going without clearing stuff out. Right. So, so the idea is that on the, the server, when the page gets rendered, that kind of virtual DOM AST is saved off and then passed along with the the payload so that it can rehydrate on the client side? Uh, that's my guess. Yeah, okay. I think you guys should bring Ycats or or Godfrey on to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> right, right. All I know is the VM part kind of enables this, like, you won't see that sort of flicker when the JavaScript takes over. It's not going to, like, clear out the page anymore. It will sort of look at what's there and what it needs to render. So very yeah. React style. Very cool. Cool. And then one last question about uh, Fastboot. Uh, how do you see Fastboot changing the Ember ecosystem? Do you see a lot of add-on authors having to do extra work to to make sure that they're compliant, or or maybe just how it, what uses use cases there are for Ember? Like basically, what effect do you think uh, Fastboot coming closer and closer to being production ready? How is that going to affect you know Ember at large? So I think there's like a couple areas that are probably going to hurt add-on authors for a while uh, if they want to support Fastboot. The first one is definitely DOM-level stuff. So if you haven't been using the did insert element hook or you're using like a D3-type library, those are still kind of like unknown at this point. 
as to whether like how to handle that um because especially if you have an initializer that like tries to read stuff off the dom you can't really do that anymore so like in rails you might try to grab a csrf token in an initializer you're going to have to move that code somewhere else where it will run in fastboot or or maybe it just doesn't run in fastboot the second thing is network stuff so the xml http request such a sandwich word to say every time my mouth is just like <laughs> and it's hard to spell too because they spell it weird um so that's not available either so you don't get jquery ajax we're kind of exploring a few different options one is uh ember network which provides like a fetch polyfill and some other stuff that works both in node and the browser um another option we're exploring uh dave Methan from J- the jquery core team kind of gave us a really cool pointer, which was like jQuery has this way to say like when some parameters for an Ajax request happen, you can choose to handle it yourself in a different way. So that code runs in Node. So it seems like it could be possible for us to implement jQuery Ajax in terms of that. The other option, which uh, I think Ember Weekend pointed out in the the Ember Global meetup chat today was we could like stub out Ember XML HTTP requests with the fake XML HTTP requests, which is what Pretender uses Mm -hmm. uh, under the hood. And that would allow any Ajax implementation to exist. So I think like now that I have, I've worked on a few different add-ons and so for Ember pouch, so because pouch runs in node, it wasn't that much work, but it was sort of confusing because I was like, how do I require something in Node? And so in in an Ember Fastboot app, so how you do that is you say fastboot.require. So there's going to be a Fastboot global exposed to you when you're in Node. And fastboot.require allows you to require Node modules. And then you have to like also put it in your package.json of this is one you can run in Fastboot because we sort of had this security sandbox. I'm not going to go too deep into it because Tom's talk really talks about this and it's really great. So as I was watching Tom's talk and remembering my experience of kind of like doing this with add-ons, uh, it made me want to write an add-on, which I think I'll do today of like, so there's kind of the, the way you like have these sort of like node shims is you have to write an AMD module yourself rather than an ES6 module. So, and you also have to like know a little bit about how Broccoli works for your add-on. Cause you have to like, if I'm in the fast boot mode, return this Broccoli tree, otherwise return this other Broccoli tree. Mm-hmm. I think we can really consolidate that for add-on authors with another add-on. And I would like to write ES6, but then Babel would uh, compile it to ES5 for nodes. So even if you're in 0.10 or 0.12, it would still work. So I think we can do that. So that's what I'm going to be working on next. We really want it to be easy to test and develop Fastboot stuff. Like we don't want it to be a burden if it doesn't have to be. So I think we can look at some of the stuff in Tom's talk. And it's all stuff I've done now because most of my Fastboot work has been like stealing stuff from Tom and putting it in my own project. (laughs) So once like I've done enough copy paste, I'm like, oh, there's probably some abstraction here or whatever. So with the uh, specifically with the Ajax libraries, um, are you looking forward to any kind of um, 
uh, abort uh, mechanism with those because I know that with promises you can't really abort them. Um, and if we lose XML HTTP requests, then like there's really no way to abort. Hmm. Do you mean like your fastboot process could abort stuff? What What's the use case? I mean, I mean, um, I guess in general, like yeah i guess there's no real need for it in uh fastboot land but in uh, people are talking about you know you would just use the library transparently in both sides so now yeah it's fine that fastboot doesn't need to be at abort but if you try to use the same library client side uh now you have a you know type ahead autocomplete um if it can't abort you're gonna do a lot of wasted effort oh i see so you want you still want like some library that works in both but still has all of the facilities that you would expect expect in the client side yeah yeah i mean it, it really i mean i guess i guess it doesn't matter if, if that abort is a no-op in node because the you know you most likely won't use it i can't think of any case where you would but i, I mean you know maybe because you're, re you're reaching out for getting you know to get models and things like that and sometimes uh i know like image libraries sometimes they don't actually load the entire image they just get the head and then just support the connection but like without it was it's a weird hack you know and most of the time uh, those kind of yeah. things are not necessary, so it really doesn't matter if it's no up in Node. But um, um, so Terrace is, Ember Sherpa is kind of leading the charge on Ember Ajax. So I think the idea is for it to be API compatible in both. And so, like maybe in Node, it just doesn't do anything or something, or mm -hmm. you don't use it in Node. But I, I don't think we want to leave out any Ajax features because, like, if you look at the patch, sorry, the fetch polyfill there's a lot of stuff it can't do like yeah. it can't do streaming uh, i don't think it can do file uploads or something or like query that. prams uh, i know i was using the react one recently and i couldn't didn't have any support for query prams i had to like manually serialize them yeah so uh i think we'll definitely want to hit parity with uh the xml http requests and maybe have some nicer interface on top mm -hmm. and so uh i think these are all use cases like we, because we can't really break the web and we can't break people's stuff. Like I think that would be a good question for Terrace. But I, it seems like uh, if some use case you have isn't being used by Ember Ajax, which uses Ember Network under the hood, then definitely file issues and stuff. It's it feels like there's a lot of duplicated effort to make it work in both. But to kind of make it easy for everyone, that's what we have to do. Right. So you played kind of the leading role. Uh, I'm, I kind of think that you did most, if not all of the work, but you definitely play a leading role in uh, converting Ember data into an add-on. Um, what was that process like and how did you approach the problem? So, fun story about Ember data. We have now used three or four different like module or JavaScript compilers over the years. So before this one, we were using the compiler out of Square it was called, I think it was just called ES6 module transpiler or something. And it was like a really good first attempt before 6 to 5 and then Babel came out of just just doing the module compile step. It wouldn't like do any of your other ES6 features or anything. I think they kind of said like, let's join forces with Babel. They're doing a really good job. Or I think they joined with Esperanto first. And so I think Esperanto is still a thing. We used that for a bit. And then we went to just using Babel. So one thing was, is uh, we used all of these tools before Ember CLI to build both Ember and Ember data. And Ember CLI just takes 
as an add-on author, it takes so much of the complexity of building stuff just out of your hands and does it for you and does it more correctly than we would have done it. Like we've had bugs with source maps and Ember data and we couldn't figure out where in the build pipeline the invalid source map was being generated. So I just like took that out of the final build, which is kind of when you experience that bug, it's a bad developer experience. But then like removing the source maps is also a bad developer experience because the compiled code was not as readable. Um, but when you're using Ember CLI, they've already figured all of that out. So you just get that for free. And part of it also was Ember data was using a lot of Ember's internals uh, over the years. So we really wanted to push stuff into Ember to be public APIs because like Ember would frequently break our stuff if uh, it wasn't public because they'd be like, oh, I don't think anybody's using this. And then it would break Ember data. And so the other part was just like, we want it to be an example of a good add-on. Like there's no reason Ember data can't be an add-on. So let's do that. So the main approach was honestly using git move to move stuff into the add-on folder and then just had to change some file names. And then it worked in Ember CLI and like that part was actually not too difficult and it was amazing. Sort of the harder part was updating the globals build because we still want that to work. So if you're not using Ember CLI, you can still keep up to date with Ember data. We wanted that to really be more of a modern thing and leverage Ember CLI where we could and then output some kind of globals file. So that took a lot of effort and tweaking to get right. The main motivator, honestly, was like I was tired of explaining to people that, no, you need to update bower.json, not package.json. <laughs> like, it's in both. And I was like, wow, this like is super confusing for both me and other people. Like, it doesn't need to be that way. So let's, let's fix that. Because I would, I would rather have one package manager than two as much as possible. So, so uh, do you have any insight on like what the, what the plan is with Ember? Is Ember going to become an, an add-on also? Yep. So Ember, this is going, this is going to, I'm not going to make promises for the core <laughs> team. I just know sort of their process of approaching the problem. So there's a lot of work being done in Ember CLI right now to do what's called tree shaking. So the way Ember CLI works right now is when you say you have, a, you want to import an add-on and you're, you import that add-on and it has like three files. So it's going to compile those three files and stick them into vendor.js. So even if in your app, you only import one of those files, you're still going to get all three. So your app is now bigger than it has to be. Um, and it's just going to have code that is dead. So that might uh, get eliminated by the, like a, a dead code remover, like uh, Uglify or Google Closure, but probably not because it's in an AMD module and the AMD module has strings and stuff and strings don't really ever get dropped in in this particular optimization. So what tree shaking says is it's going to like look at your JavaScript code and say, it's going to build up a list of all the imported stuff instead and only import what you tell it to import. There's going to be some exceptions to this, like your app code, like it needs to load all your app code so it can do like the dynamic loading of components and whatever. But when it comes to importing add-ons and stuff or importing like, like uh, with the PouchDB add-on, you can import the PouchDB object itself. But so maybe you want to do that, but not import all the Ember data stuff. You could do that. And as a result, you would have a much smaller payload. So we want to achieve the same effect for Ember because there's a lot of people who 
aren't using everything in Ember. There's a lot of stuff in sort of the Ember standard library. And the first step to doing that is to really make sure that Ember itself is an add-on. All the ES6 stuff is working the way it's supposed to. We currently have some hacks in the Ember code base from converting it to ES6 that like we do imports without calling import and that kind of stuff. Like we have just some very private hacks in there. So that's sort of like a two-part thing of like one, we want to make the Ember and Ember data testing code bases more idiomatic because like a lot of the tests are like code you would never write in an app and they don't import stuff from Ember or stuff like that. And the second part is like really just making it into an add-on so we don't need this custom build pipeline or, you know, we need as little of it as possible. And then the other benefit is the same for doing as Ember data is you only need it in your package.json. Ember CLI is fully aware of everything going on and can do some really cool build optimizations. So that's kind of like the grand future scheme of like why make Ember into an add-on is tree shaking and then also just making it a nicer developer experience. Yeah, that'd be that'd be really nice. I know um I'm I'm all I'm already using Ember CLI for you know like any JavaScript side project anyway. And so it would be really nice to just you know have a have a version of Ember CLI where you could just spin up and say just uh newbie up some blank project, not necessarily even Ember. Because right right now there's a lot of kind of configuration you have to do to to uh to get it all set up. But when, once you do there's just a very tiny amount of code. We were we were just talking like earlier today about uh the JavaScript pipe fatigue and, and all of the kind of like all the messy problems with JavaScript don't seem to exist now. Like if, if you're familiar with Ember tools. So it's a, I really like yep. appreciate Ember CLI. Yeah. I mean, so Ryan wrote Ember tools. I took over maintenance for a while and then we kind of just let it die. But I think that was really the first version of Ember CLI. Like, I think we learned a lot from it, but I agree. Like these, <laughs> these problems, like, a lot of the stuff I, I see about people, they're like, I need to like configure my Webpack thing to do X, Y, Z and blah, blah, blah. And like, I just want something basic to get going. And I'm like, I, I'm sorry. Like, I won't lie. Like, I like working on build tools, but I don't like working on them. I don't like solving the same problems over and over and over again, and especially, <laughs> right. especially in my client applications. I never, like, we did a few projects with Require.js and I never felt super great about like handing that off to someone. So Require.js is a great project, but it's build tool documentation is sort of notorious for having lots of options. It's not really clear how stuff is supposed to be pieced together. But with Ember, it's like you're going to you're going to run three commands. You're going to run Ember build, Ember test and Ember server. And of course, if you want like a plugin or something else, that's all available via help and stuff. So it's yeah, I'm just really glad that Ember CLI exists. I probably wouldn't be as active in open source or really enjoy working on JavaScript stuff as much if I didn't have, like, it just takes out so much of the stuff like people would hire us for of like, oh, you know the grunt, let us, uh... <laughs> right. This whole sections of resumes just dropped off and you just like Ember CLI. <laughs> yeah, and it lets me kind of work on my app, which I really like rather than I like working on my app at my day job and then like I'll do build tools and stuff in open source time. But so one of those things where I like to move between the two and not do one or the other exclusively. Right. Do you have any news on uh, any new changes coming to Ember data? Yeah. So right now we're focusing on bug fixes and docs. Uh, we're working with the documentation team on that. 
one thing is getting Ember Data more Fastboot compatible out of the box. So Ember Data, the library itself, is Fastboot compatible, but it uses jQuery Ajax for JSON API and REST and Active Model Serializer. So we kind of want to make that compatible and figure out a good migration path forward and maybe make the jQuery implemented one sort of optional, like make it an add-on in 3.0, but it will continue to work throughout the 2X series. Because it's one goal in the, like, make it use Ember Ajax or Ember Network or something like that is right now the, like, Ajax options and the Ajax method itself, they are technically private methods, but ones that I tell people to override anyways. (laughs) So, uh, not private. Oh, I like, there's, like, some word for between private and public. Oh, yeah, the um, intimate APIs, right? Intimate, yeah. Yeah, I forgot where we're going. So Ember, <laughs> Ember Data is going to just be more compatible out of the box, but we want... Oh, so we were in the Intimate API section. So we want it, We kind of want like an AJAX service, if you will, with an Ember Data wrapper. So like one feature that people ask for a lot and we haven't really agreed upon like a great way to go forward is like I want to be able to like hit some arbitrary URL or I want to do like an RPC style thing. So an RPC style thing is where you're like slash post slash one slash publish where you're not like just sending it data for a save and then like getting it back. Like the backend is going to do something maybe a little more sophisticated and then send you some new data. But like build URL and all of these things were not uh, build URL is public, but like doing Ajax and stuff. So we want you to be able to like just give a URL to Ember Data, and like maybe some Ajax options of like it's a put, you know, it has these headers, blah blah blah, and then Ember Data will look at the response and give you a model back or whatever, depending on what you do. That so part of like the Ember Ajax stuff is like we want this more robust way to configure Ember data because right now people typically use like the jQuery Ajax pre-filter stuff to like set a cookie or set an authentication token or something. And so you have to do it in two places. You do it in jQuery and then like maybe also in Ember data itself, depending on your app. It's very common. So it's one of the problems we're looking to solve. Kind of a long-term goal that I'm kind of really interested in working on is so Nolan Lawson, one of the maintainers of PouchDB, recently put out this app that's like a Pokédex. So it like lists all the Pokémon and all their attributes and stuff. And part of the reason it's interesting is because he uses... So it all works offline because it's Pouch. But a lot of the like sort of data processing and storing and fetching is all done off the main thread in a web worker. And I think it would be like a really interesting feature for an add-on or like maybe move it into core one day, but for Ember data to be able to do that also because serializing stuff is currently kind of expensive and like so is JSON parsing. So if we could improve the performance by taking that off your main JavaScript thread and moving it to a worker, but you didn't have to write any code, like if you're using one of the default adapters, maybe you have a little bit of customization, but there's nothing super custom going on so you just like install this add-on and then it works like i think that would be really cool especially for apps that like load lots of records at once it would be great for like especially on a mobile phone 
doing that off the main thread so your user can still interact with the app is super important. Yeah, we had uh, we had Runspired on and he he pointed out that example and we checked it out. It was uh, it was really interesting. I love that that idea of doing a lot of that work in the, you know, in a, in a worker thread somewhere. Yeah, I think the Nolan Lawson piece actually goes so far as to kind of say that the main JS thread is really only for UI drawing and not at all for any of the actual work that goes into it. Um, yeah, to get it's like, like handling events and MS, yeah, seventeen MS uh, redraw times. I want to say, um, so he's using SVG and stuff. It's really awesome. Um, seeing seeing some of that number data sounds amazing. Yeah, I love, I I love that idea. I think we have all the pieces in Ember to do it, but we're probably a few years off. Like maybe once Glimmer two, we could start exploring that in the long run. Um, that's kind of like why I'm here for Ember. It's more of a platform and. It's more of a platform than a framework, meaning that you get a lot of things for free if you stick around long enough. Like Ember really makes bets for the long term. So sometimes those bets don't pay off, but I think often they do. And like when I think about Fastboot and I think about Fastboot is really new now, like you can just barely run it now. Like everybody can run it. It's not just like some project in like a, a tilde or a yap consulting project. Like anybody can run it now. So it's really early days for that in like the public space. But I think about like a year from now, there's going it's going to be really great and there still might be some hiccups or pain. But in two years, like it's just going to be part of the default Ember experience that everyone deploys. Everyone just kind of has. And there are lots of people working on and maintaining it. And uh, the add-on eco- ecosystem will have caught up by then. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel about Ember CLI as a whole, because, I mean, that's almost two years old coming up soon. I mean, it was announced, I want to say, two Ember comps ago, so about, about two years old. And when it was originally released, there were no add-ons. And, you know, like, a few came out and a few more, and now we're at, like, 2,000. And you're right, it's just these long-term bets. It's like, yeah, eventually you're really going to want the ability to, you know, throw one library in this project and then, you know, have community solutions and be able to pull them into new Ember apps. And you're right; it's just these long-term bets. And fast fastboot is the is the current one we're on. But there was also, you know, the re-rendering like HTML bars, the first uh, iteration of uh, HTML bars. That was another long-term bet that was like this big, huge hype thing for about a year. Um, but yeah, Ember takes tons of long-term bets. That's a really good insight. Yeah, it's like s- sometimes it feels disappointing when stuff like Collection View or popular add-ons that use a lot of private APIs break in certain ways but when i really think about it we've only had a couple apps where we needed something like that and most of our other apps yeah i won't say it's been like the perfect upgrade experience but it's been a lot better than other places i've been like php or rails old rails new rails is a lot better at this but yeah and um uh, ember now has a uh, long-term support that was released um so how does that uh, affect ember data so for Ember Data, I think we're actually going back to, I think 2.0. We currently have a version assertion that it has to be 2.0 or above. But that being said, uh, it does work with 1.13 technically. Like if you remo- remove that assertion, it's fine. So I think the direction I would like to drive it back is we will support 1.13 and on for a while. Um, and then we will support all the 2.0 releases until we're in 3.0, and 3.0 will probably even support 2.0 for quite a while. Um, so the long-term support doesn't really affect us. We'll, we'll support any long-term support releases as long as it is 
a long-term support release. But right now we're going for 113 on and forward to kind of help with the upgrade process. Like honestly, Ember doesn't Ember data doesn't use a whole lot from Ember itself. You would be surprised to see like Ember data is largely a JavaScript library with a lot of Ember bindings. Mm -hmm. Right. So is this uh, part of the? So you had a um, an issue to create, I guess, some new guides around upgrading specifically from 113 to two. Is this kind of has something to do with the long term support? Uh, yeah. Well, what really made me open the guide was uh, I'm on a client project right now and we're doing a Rails upgrade. Um, and so as I walk through the valley of darkness that is upgrading Rails to three apps, <laughs> part of what made me realize like we need something like an upgrade guide or what I realized our blog post wasn't reaching was because Ember is a platform, Ember data is sort of a smaller platform. So most of the pain I run into with upgrading this Rails app is not really necessarily anything in Rails proper itself. Like all of that was like, it was a lot of effort, but it wasn't the main thing that keeps us from upgrading. It's really the plugins, the popular plugins that you have to like update a version and it's not really clear what changed in that version and that version. And it doesn't like work with this particular sub point of rails or whatever so realizing that like uh i open an issue of one we want to have like a step-by-step -step guide uh we want to have as many like ember watson commands to do these automatically for you but then also we want to figure out like if you were using a plugin so like in ember if you were using collection view your upgrade process probably wasn't as pleasant as it could have been so the same things exist for ember data really like if you're using a local storage adapter or like some plugin that reached into Ember data's internals and then changed because, you know, it was necessary for you to do that. We kind of really want to figure out like, what are the popular plugins? And here's maybe some like a semi upgrade guide for that. But one of the Rails examples is this Rails plugin called Render Component, which was like official in Rails 1. They extracted it into a plugin in Rails 2, and then there was just no support from there on. And it was like, oh, this is now a plugin. And then it was like not maintained. And people were like, oh, you should use this thing now. But the steps to like move there were not clear. So we kind of want to like pick, at least make people aware of like this plugin in particular is going to give you some trouble. And we'll try to figure out a good path forward for that. So um, right now, what is the most uh, exciting thing for you in, in the Ember space and Ember data? Um, what are the things that are you're most you're most uh, keen on right now? Uh, Fastboot for sure, and engines. So yes, engines. Yay! One feature I've wanted for a long time is lazy loading of code. Um, it's something we always had at my previous job with Ryan because we had required JS, and so everything was asynchronous all the time. That definitely has trade offs, but when the framework can manage it for you, it seems great. We've really had some trouble with some of our client apps. Like we have one with a dashboard and it needs to load D3 and then also a library called C3, which is a, a like a light layer on top of D3. That's a lot of JavaScript, it turns out. So we like had to keep rolling our own things of like, if D3 is loaded, like then this route can continue to load. Otherwise, like you need to like put a script tag on the page. And then once that loads, then we will like try to revisit the route and go again so 
having that kind of built in and supported by the framework is probably going to be pretty awesome, especially with tree shaking. Uh, you can get, like, if you need it, the option for shortening your payload is there or building custom bundles. There are a lot of lar really big Ember apps that need this, but I'm kind of glad in Ember CLI, like it's not a default because like it's a really hard concept to teach of like code loading, especially when it comes to like, you need to know like there's some common bundle which should be loaded before like your engine bundle and whatever. Like I think we can do a lot better because we kind of have this fine-grained control over the build system itself. So, so with the uh, the engines, uh, you're saying that the, they would do some kind of like hot loading of you go to a route, template starts to render, and the helper fires off and says this engine's rendering. You don't have any of the code. It kind of blocks, loads it, and then and then renders. Yeah, I think with engines that sort of thing becomes a lot more possible because especially with an engine, you can sort of you don't need to like with the like with Ember add-ons. It's hard to know like what's needed until runtime mm -hmm. but with an engine you can kind of say like this engine is going to need most of the things in this engine so but until you're actually visiting the engine you don't need this code like the right. parent application should not reach into the engine for that code that could like if it does need to do that that code should be an add-on yeah so we could like even for generating routes or whatever that's still done in the main app so having like a formal way to do that is really nice yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah, now, now that I think about it, it's like engines are they're the exact opposite of an add-on because they, they um, the parent app can create things for them to see, like services, um, but but they don't use any of the code um, other than that. Again, the parents can't use anything without rendering a helper. There's no way for them to get access right to the internals of the engine. Yep, that was my understanding at least. Yeah. No, I mean, well, yeah, I guess it. Yeah, I mean, if the goal would be to you know. Uh, I guess hot load the the code in, then you'd you'd have to have some kind of assurance that that would happen. But, but yeah, it's a they seem really interesting. I can't wait to to find something to use them in. So you mentioned earlier that you had uh, some personal projects um, where you were trying out things like uh, fast boot and MCI deploy. So uh, what are some of these personal projects, and you know, how are they consuming your time? Uh, so I really only have one project that I'm allowing to eat into my personal time. I'm still trying to kind of I got really burned out on open source so I'm kind of trying to balance that out and not burn out again so I have one which is uh, the Ember API doc viewer and that's on my github at 5tanley slash ember dash API dash docs and we'll put we'll put a link to it in the show notes but I'm now at the point where I'm kind of writing an add-on to like sync the master database to your local database and that will kind of allow people to run tests and do that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm actually going to be opening some issues soon of like a lot of the help I need right now is actually really be beginner level uh, Ember stuff because all the data and all that stuff is fixed out. So I need like I need a link to switch between projects. I need some CSS tweaks here. I need XYZ. So I just kind of need to open those issues and I know the docs team and the uh, the Ember Denver group in particular are meeting in a couple weeks and they're doing like a you're new to Ember and you want to contribute things so David from the documentation team was like hey if you want some help and I'm like oh I will open some issues and because a, a lot <laughs> of it is like 
I don't have a loading indicator because I just haven't been thinking about it right now. I've mostly been thinking about like fast boot and deploy and offline and PouchDB and like the interface that's there renders and is a proof of concept and that's what I cared about. Like it's like because it's Ember, it was really easy for me to just get that far and have something that had a little bit of functionality. And now that kind of the bigger parts are in place, I can start organizing people to work on the rest of the user functionality. Super cool. So uh, I like to get all uh, big topic-y towards the end of our interviews and kind of ask you a big broad question. Uh, what do you think the greatest strength of, uh, of Ember's community is? Um, or your maybe your favorite aspect of it? Hmm. That's a good question. There's a lot of things I like. I don't know. I like how helpful everyone is. It's really nice to me as a maintainer. I don't really get as many private messages or emails or just like swarms of GitHub issues asking for help because people are often able to find help in the Ember Slack or Stack Overflow. Like I think there's like a few people who like watch the Ember.js tag on Stack Overflow and answer very fast. And I think they're really the unsung heroes of the Ember community because they're not super visible until you like Google for an Ember error and they're like, they're there like explaining stuff. And so everybody who answers questions in Slack, IRC and Stack Overflow, like really they deserve our thanks because uh, especially for me, it really helps keep me from burning out because I like giving support, but I don't like doing it all, all, all of my time and like still trying to have a personal life and things like that. I, I mean, Ember's community also values the thing Ember itself does. So like when it came to like Ember CLI deploy, it was really cool to see last year at Ember comp. They're like, Luke's up there and he's like explaining three different things. And he's like, these are three different things. They are now one thing because like we decided that they don't need to be three different things things so we can all work together so really seeing a lot of ember projects come together and work closely with one another is just super awesome yeah totally agree totally agree there uh there's something that we mentioned uh on a modern web podcast with uh with matthew beal a couple weeks ago um uh how the the core team of ember cli deploy just kind of like formed and and it kind of happens to look very similar to uh, an Ember sub team, like an officially sanctioned kind of Ember sub team, like Ember Data or uh, the Fastboot team. Uh, they have rings, and they get to put the rings together, like in Captain Planet. It, yes, if you're yes, on a, absolutely. If you're, if you're on an Ember sub team, it does work like that. I can verify. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. All right, so uh, which one are you? Are you, are you Fire? Are you Heart? Mati? Uh, I'm probably I'm probably Heart. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool, cool. So uh, via Twitter, I've learned uh, recently that you are looking for other work, probably a product shop, I think, is what I've been gathering, uh, so that you can maybe dive more deeply into specific problems. Um, how's that coming along? Uh, it's good. I'm being kind of slow. Somebody once told me, like, if you're looking to switch jobs, don't do it in a way where it's like, oh, I like need a job in a week or two weeks. Uh, like start looking six months ago. So it's kind of that. I love the front side. It's a great place to work. Um, I'm looking to really more work on infrastructure problems. So I really want to work both as a developer and kind of like work with the operations team at companies and stuff. And uh, really personally, selfishly want to 
level up at sort of these automation type tools like Docker or Chef or uh, AWS or whatever. So been kind of letting for companies that will let me dabble in both or at least dabble on the outside while remaining a developer and really becoming like a bridge between the developers and operations. Uh, yeah, I guess just location wise, looking at St. Austin, Portland is like also an option of moving places. Honestly, I'd love to work with remote teams and teams that do that well. Um, I kind of truly believe that's the way developer teams are going to be going moving forward. You're just able to hire like a much broader spectrum and like different different types of people because you're not tied down to location. That's how you know that's how open source works. It's something I'm very familiar with. I'm also looking looking for like a a diverse company, especially want to work with uh, a very diverse team. That being said, you should totally come apply at the front side if you are a mid like a mid level developer or a senior level developer. We just hired a couple junior level developers for mentoring. You will definitely get to work on some really interesting and challenging UX problems and work on open source. It's a really fun place to work. Everyone is really nice. So you should apply at the front side and you can email me, Stanley at frontside.io or Brandon, uh, who's kind of running hiring, uh, Brandon at frontside.io. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Sounds very good. And uh, I know Austin's uh, is amazing. It's got to be a great place to work. Yeah. Uh, we're open to remote as well. We're starting to kind of explore that possibility because uh, like we'll definitely move people to Austin, you know, for the right person. It seems like they're interested in remote as well. Right. Yeah. We've been doing the same thing recently here, kind of dabbling with uh, some of our more senior people, um, letting them move off and kind of explore whether, you know, uh, remote work works with us because we, we typically pair. Uh-huh. So it's a, it's kind of a, a more, more difficult thing, but yeah. yeah, but definitely embracing remote culture is pretty much an inevitability, I think in the, in the consulting space. So you're, you're exactly right. You just get to hire from such a broader uh, range of expertise. So you gain a lot. Uh, so, okay. Okay. All right. Now I'm going to get, okay. some ser- I'm gonna okay, get okay, serious. Okay. Cool. 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 I'm going to get real serious here. Every interview we do, we ask the interviewee, usually we surprise them with this information, which I'm pretty sure I didn't refer- didn't mention this before. I but, am not uh, the father. <laughs> we are going to request that you name this episode your own uh, episode title. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> I always feel really bad about this because I always mean to give you like a lot of uh, forewarning, but then I totally forget. Yeah, usually, usually we give people a lot of warning and then say that we didn't, but this time it's like, oh, we totally forgot. <laughs> Does it have to be relevant to the episode? No. Absolutely not. All right. I, I feel uh, like maybe it shouldn't be obscene, but I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, your, it's your call, your it's, episode. It's not obscene. Uh, <laughs> I found your subtweets. Ooh, that's a good one. And I it like just it. has nothing to do with this episode. <laughs> amazing. It's just amazing. It's just an image Jen Schiffer has been posting at people, and I've been posting back at her. She has this like, image of a cat uh that uh, (laughs) says hacking yeah it says like uh i found your subtweets you little shit and just (laughs) (laughs) you can i hope you edit that part out of the episode but uh (laughs) yeah it it doesn't seem like there's a lot of cursing on the episode but (laughs) well no actually yeah speaking of that uh i don't think we've ever we must not have ever had anybody cuss because uh apparently itunes will put a little explicit flag next to your episode if you do because it happened to jeffrey biles (laughs) on your screencast yeah 
You can oh, wow, you can really? bleep it too though, and then it's and then it's fine. But yeah, yeah. But one of his anything. episodes had it just one of them, and I I mentioned it in Twitter, and he goes, "Yeah, I said shit one time." <laughs> wow. So yeah, that's how you get that explicit label, man. That means that you're legit. Yeah, I kind of want to <laughs> leave it in now just to see if we get it. That's how you got to test. <laughs> Uh, all right. All right. Well, hey, uh, Stanley, it's been great having you. Thank you so much for um, for being a part of uh, Ember Weekend. Yeah, it was awesome. Great having you on. Thanks for having me.